Hello and welcome to the Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. My co-host today, Dave Anderson. Our producer, William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about functional programming. But before I continue, we have a special guest here. We have Adam Trilling. How's it going, Adam? Good. Thanks for having me. Adam is the director of service delivery here at Stride, and he will have a lot of things to say about functional programming. So it's yeah. great to have you. Yes, I will. Yeah. How do you feel about functional programming? Um, I, like, <laughs> I like it a lot. I've been tinkering with a lot of different programming languages over the past couple of years, especially now that I don't write code full time. It becomes much more appealing to me to go home and spend a couple hours writing code and working on things that I couldn't really do back when I was writing code for my day job. And so I was messing with Clojure for a while and with Elixir for a long while. And now I'm actually learning Haskell, which has been quite an experience. But I had started actually with this experimentation when I was still writing code full time. And it was very interesting to me how learning functional programming paradigms changed my approach to writing code for work, which I was writing Ruby and JavaScript at the time. Yeah, which, everybody so, says that. They say it like stretches your brain in weird ways and makes you think differently forever. So like just just to like for any listeners out there who aren't familiar, like what are what are the main differences between I, I guess like the opposing paradigm and the other corner is object oriented, the the other philosophy that people tend to follow or probably most familiar with from being taught Java or C in college or what have you. Yeah, people talk about object-oriented and functional programming as if they were opposites, but they're not. It's Actually, there are several languages that support both paradigms. What's actually more opposite is imperative programming, which all the languages that you mention are, are imperative languages. And the primary difference in philosophy is that in an imperative language, you tell the computer what to do in what order. And in a functional programming language, you tell the computer what you want, and it figures out how to tell you what you want using a bunch of functions that you've defined. So, you know, in an imperative programming language like Java, you might, if you had a sequence of steps to do, you would tell the computer, do step one, do step two, do step three. But in a functional programming language, especially as you get into the more pure functional programming languages, you would break the steps down into much smaller pieces. And so you might have one function that calls seven other functions and then two others, depending on some condition. And all of the path creation happens at compile time. Right. So rather than an object oriented programming where you have, you may have these objects that have these methods that only that object can do functional programming. You just say, Hey, do this for me. And it's written in a way where that's the only thing that that particular function does. Does functional programming like use like inheritance in that aspect at all or no? It could. Like Scala, for example, is object-oriented and functional at the same time. And so some of those paradigms can be you know, supported, both of them be supported in the same language. A lot of functional programming languages that are not object-oriented use is instead of having, you'll have some sort of a record format that would store all of the properties of an object in an object-oriented language, but functional programming languages that are more dedicated to that also adhere strongly to the concept of immutability, right. which means that once you create an object or create a record or create whatever data structure, you can never change it again, and which is directly opposed to the way one typically writes object-oriented code, especially in a language like Java or in a language like Ruby. Manipulating mm -hmm. the state of objects is the primary way of accomplishing things. Yeah, you've got your getters and setters. Exactly. Whereas, I guess, 
if you're writing Java with more of a functional bent, you might only have getters once you construct the object. You or that's a more of a immutable side thing. If not functional, it's still it's still object oriented. Right. In a language with strong support for immutability, instead of setters, you would have a function that returns a new copy of the object with the appropriate changes made. So the initial copy of the object is still in existence, but then your function returns a new version of it that has whatever changes you need made, Mm. which is a significant advantage, for example, if you're doing concurrent programming, because you know that you have guarantees in the language that an object can never be mutated while another thread is operating on it, for example. Yeah, I've definitely encountered my share of nasty bugs when arguments get mutated, when dates are truncated randomly, <laughs> and other functions that have been called somewhere else. Just really wish that everything was immutable sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So do you program in an object-oriented way and a functional way at the same time? Like, are you creating objects and then passing those objects that are instances of classes into functions? That's a good way of thinking about it, because even in languages that are not object-oriented, you'll have certain operations that only apply to certain data types. For example, you know, if you have of the plus operator, it's only going to work on two numbers. Hmm. So, but instead of, you know, in a, in a language like Java, I know this is a, an exercise that I had to do in college, and I know it's a pretty common exercise when you're learning object-oriented programming, you might have a number class, and then you have to define operations on it, like you know, add, multiply, and then those are instance methods on the on the number class. Mm-hmm. But in a language like, I mean, especially in a language like Haskell, plus is instead a function that takes two arguments, both of which have to be numbers, and then it returns an answer that is a different number. Right, like a glass example of like Lisp, where you just have parentheses, where the operator is first, and then you have two arguments, so you can kind of visualize it in a way that's in line with any other language basically like a javascript function is in the same format but you know that that's also an operator in lisp yeah and in a lot of functional programming languages you start to see things that you would traditionally not think of as functions become functions like operators like the the arithmetic operators and you know even function application in some languages becomes an operator function application yeah so when you pass arguments to a function there are operators that allow you to, or there are functions that look like operators that change the way the, the order of operations or change the association or change infix versus prefix. Infix versus prefix? Yeah. So, for example, what Dave was talking about where in Lisp you have, you can start with, you start with the operator, like you say, plus three, four, and then the result is seven. Or like you might be able to change the function such that you could say three plus four and it would still return seven. So infix versus prefix notation for functions. So why do you call it functional programming? In functional programming, functions are treated as what's called first-class citizens, meaning that a function is a piece of data, just like any other, any other variable in the system. So for anybody who's programmed in JavaScript, they've seen a lot of this, where a function will take a callback as an argument, and then that callback is a function. And then at some point during the, the execution of the, the calling function, it will call that callback with certain arguments. And so there actually are not a lot. I was thinking about a counterexample. There are not a lot of languages these days that don't support functions as first-class citizens, so it's a pretty common thing. But that's really the basis of what allows all these functional paradigms to work is the idea of functions as first-class citizens. Yeah, it's kind of interesting working with a language like Python where functions are first-class citizens 
but also everything are, is an object. So a function is an object, but it's actually a functional first-class citizen, and you can pass it around as a lambda, or even just as the function itself, like the named function. But it's secretly an object. <laughs> and I believe in Python, you can even call functions on functions. Yo, dog, yeah. I oh. heard you like functions. <laughs> yeah. You can oh, do the yeah. same thing in JavaScript. Too. Yeah. Because I guess they're, they're member functions of yeah. the object, the function object. But like, don't do okay. that, though. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just because yeah. you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> right. I mean, like, it's, it's interesting because like, you can do a lot of things in these languages, but then there are accepted norms that nudge you in another way often. Like, you know, Python, you can do BDD testing. You can do, like, for functions as arguments to methods in your objects. But it's often kind of unexpected. Mm. Yeah. I know there's a lot of talk about writing JavaScript in a more functional style, writing Ruby in a more functional style. But it's very easy to take it too far and get yourself into trouble. You still, you know... You're maybe trying to make your code cleaner, but you still need to stay within the idioms of the language or you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> right. Although it is interesting with JavaScript because I feel like they've been more open to that kind of functional paradigm than many other languages. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense in JavaScript because of the way the language is constructed. I've, I've noticed JavaScript tends to be much happier when you're programming in a functional style and when you're going out of your way not to mutate things. And for example, the callback scheme is is one of the primary design patterns in JavaScript. Yeah, it's interesting con- contrasting a web framework like Express where you have the the next callback passed in as a parameter to like your your function that you're going to get the page from in contrast to something like Rails or Django where you have a controller which is an object and you know handles methods according to routes which are also objects <laughs> well which brings me to one of the primary advantages of functional programming style which is composability in express for you know, as, as you mentioned the passing in the next callback to a route allows you to get very creative about swapping out what that next value is. So it allows you to, for example, write middleware in a very concise fashion. Your middleware is basically a function that behaves like a route and takes your next takes your next callback as a, as a parameter and takes your request and returns your response. So it makes it much simpler to write middleware than as compared to, say, Rails or Django. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, I guess similar in, in JavaScript land, for middlewares, I was watching the Egghead IO videos that Dan Abramov, the creator of Redux, put together, and he builds a lot of these things for middleware from first principles in a very functional way, and it's it's kind of illustrative of like that style of thinking and how simple it actually is under the covers. Yeah, Redux takes functional programming even a step further because if you once you understand the Redux pattern, it actually makes some of the more pure functional programming concepts a lot easier to grasp because in Redux, if you're doing things the way that they recommend, there is you know when you create an action and you pass it into the and pass it along, the action updates the state of the Redux store, but it does it in an atomic fashion. So there's no there's no possibility of a collision and the actions also must be pure functions, meaning that the function for any given set of inputs, it returns the same output every time. Yeah, definitely makes your life a lot easier with testing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another one of the primary advantages of functional programming is that pure functions that don't have any side effects tend to be very easy to test. Right, because you expect that 
result of that function to always be the same thing. Correct. There's no like race condition that will come and creep, especially when you have, when you're working in a language that definitely deals with immutability. So when would you not want to use functional programming? When it makes your code harder to read. You know, as I had said, you have to work within the paradigms of the programming language that you're using. When I first started to seriously get into functional programming, my stride pair at the time will tell you some stories about some things I tried to do that were probably pretty ill-advised. So in functional programming, your primary tools for data manipulation are, and there are three functions. There's map, which takes a list and a function, and it applies that function to every element of the list, and it returns that as a new list, which it's also called collect in Ruby more commonly used, I believe, as collect. And then there's filter, which takes a list and a function. And that function takes one element of the list and returns a Boolean. And so filter will return a new list where that function returns true. So if you have, you know, if you have a, a list of the numbers one through 10 and your function set is divisible by two, it'll only return the evens. So, and then reduce, which is a little more complicated to explain, Reduce takes, again, a list and a function, common pattern. <laughs> I mean, it takes a list and a function, but that function takes two parameters, both of which are elements of the list, and returns a new value, which, is, which combines those two in some way. Right. So maybe you'll pass in the plus operator as your function, and so that'll give you the sum of all the numbers in the list. Right. So it, the idea is it's called reduce because it reduces all of your, it reduces the list usually into a single value. It's also called inject in Ruby. So in pretty much any language where functional programming is intended, you'll have those three operators. Or I mean, in JavaScript, you know, if you're using lodash or underscore, it'll have that. Python has all three of those functions. Ruby has them in the standard library. Most languages have them in the standard library these days. Yeah. But in using those three, it's, it's very easy to abuse those to do things that don't necessarily make your code easier to read. Right. For example... A lot of times, you know, a very common pattern in Ruby is you have an array or a hash and you do dot each on it to iterate over the array. And within those each block, maybe you'll have multiple operations. Maybe you'll, you'll test it for something. You'll, if it's one thing, you'll do operation A. If it's another thing, you'll do operation B. And in a functional language, you would express that using map and filter. But Map and filter only usually allow you to do it one step at a time. So if you have a particularly complex operation, it's a lot of times going to be easier to read using the traditional each notation. One of the things that I saw or that I've seen before is in Lodash, the, I think we've mentioned it many times before, the chain function allows you to chain like all those different functions into and bring one brand new value. And you can definitely get carried away mm -hmm. with the thing you could do in chain and then look at it and say, what did I just write just <laughs> now? How did this all get me the information I want? But, I don't know, remember. You're using the power of functional programming. There you go. Oh, well, oh, I mean, well. I wouldn't recommend it in Lodash because <laughs> I wouldn't recommend chain in Lodash because chain pulls the entire library in, mm -hmm. which can be very, uh, uh, very, heavy. Heavy, yeah. very heavy. So like if you're actually just using like map and reduce, it's better to not map and reduce. If you're if you're able to do multiple lodash functions, it's better to just call those two lodash functions rather than chain, because then you get like even all the ones you're not using in your entire application. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I guess like chain is kind of a pretty good illustration of composability that you were talking about before, where you have all these little tiny functions that do one thing and now you call chain and you can make this one crazy thing that maybe is a little bit harder to reason about, but 
It's powerful. But it's so much fun. Well, map and filter are always composable. I know JavaScript gets a little weird because of the way the type system works, but you map and filter in any language that supports proper arrays, map and filter are always composable. So what functional programming language is the right one? Which one is best? Oh, whoa, wow. Oh. Oh, no, we're taking it there now. <laughs> yeah, you, you should, <laughs> I, should, I, thought we, I thought we knew better than to ask which programming language is best <laughs> ever. I feel, like, I feel like this is kind of like the question of like which camera is best for photography. It's the one that you have on you. <laughs> yeah. The one that you're using right now. <laughs> I just like putting our guests on the spot here. What is the best one? <laughs> which one is, yeah, Adam, which one is the best? Yeah, which one, one is the best? I mean, obviously Haskell. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's the one that you have on you. It's, it's using it right now. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I alluded to at the beginning of the episode is I've been learning Haskell in my spare time. And that's something I could not have done when I was writing Ruby for my day job because the paradigms are so different. And it's like it's it's actually probably the hardest thing I have done in programming since I learned to program because it's the, the paradigms are so different and the way of approaching writing code is so different. And you can do some tremendously powerful things with it. And, you know, as I'm sort of, as I'm getting used to the language and how it works, I'm writing what I consider to be really beautiful code and I'm finding my code a lot easier to reason about, but it's not something I would ever recommend for client work because the learning curve is so steep and it's hard to find other people who, who know the language well and understand the best practices. And, you know, there are very few companies that for which it is a good idea to pay their people to spend that much time learning. There was this pretty good article from Michael Feathers called the functional programming is a ghetto. <laughs> we were just talking about how it's like it's a ghetto by choice because people who love functional programming only want to work in functional programming and you can only work in these little tiny industries that accept you. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's also it's like really hard to get a job doing right. Haskell, but it's also hard to find someone who does Haskell. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. But there's a there's a company called Gene Street Capital in the city that they have written most of their code base in OCaml, which is another language along the lines of Haskell. That is, if you understand functional programming very deeply, it's not that difficult. But if you've only done imperative programming, it's a lot of work to learn it. But it's a great language for what they're doing because they're doing, I'm actually not sure what they're, they're, they're in finance, hence the name capital. But <laughs> Functional programming can be great for these large numeric computation systems because it makes it easy to break down the problem into smaller problems. Right. Yeah. And each of those problems can be separately reasoned about, separately tested, and then composed to solve a much bigger piece of the picture. Yeah. And like the the big big data craze kind of kicked off by MapReduce, where yeah. it's in the name. Exactly. It's Map and it's Reduce. And it's really pretty simple, but it allows you to kind of spread a really big workload over many distributed nodes and get a big result back. Exactly. It makes concurrency much simpler to implement because of immutability. It makes it much easier to break down the problem into smaller parts, not only smaller parts that can be more easily reasoned about and tested, but also smaller parts that can be distributed across thousands of cores. And some of these, like OCaml and Haskell particularly, are known for generating super fast code. Mm. You have to be careful about how you write the code, just like in any language, there's a lot of pitfalls, but you can get into your C performance with much simpler code than you would have to write in C. But again, these are, you know, these are best for very specific applications, but you can, I mean, JavaScript, as I had said before, JavaScript, when you treat it like a functional programming language, it behaves a lot better than it does when you 
just you know, try to treat it as an imperative language and you know mutate everything. And Ruby also has a lot of functional elements to it. And you know, these are both programming languages that are extremely widely in use. Java, especially Java 8, implemented a lot of functional programming concepts. You have lambdas now. You can actually take a function and pass it around as an argument to a to another function. You have streams in Java 8, which let you retrieve values from a collection one by one rather than having to load the entire collection into memory which is a common paradigm in functional programming yeah i I feel like it's interesting how like a lot of these kind of disparate languages are kind of borrowing from the same pool of ideas and arriving in a pretty similar place like now you have dynamic languages like python and ruby and javascript having static type checking checking brought in and you know java becoming more functional in, in interesting ways yeah eventually every language is going to be exactly the same all javascript right is that, <laughs> is that what's going to happen it's, it's all going to be javascript <laughs> so who are the heroes of the functional programming world like who are the the icons and the people that people idealize and, and want to learn from it's interesting because i don't really i've never been big on you know following names of particular people like oh you know, this person wrote this article and therefore I'm going to read it. I feel like it's a lot. And, and I know there are those people in the, in that, in the functional programming world. There's a guy who wrote a book that is in beta right now, which it, it blows my mind that a book can be in beta. But, <laughs> my uh, face was like, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> he, he wrote this new book. I believe the title is Haskell from First Principles or Programming Haskell from First Principles. And he's a pretty big deal in the world of functional programming. He was a speaker at LambdaConf, the big functional programming conference that was held a few months ago. And I know there's, there's a few big names like that, but a lot of, there's also a couple of interesting podcasts about functional programming, but... There's not, I'm not that familiar with the big names. I'm more, I spend a lot more time sort of reading the, there's a few articles and a few books that are considered to be authoritative on the subject. I see. I mean, the, the only functional, I guess the functional programming language book I read was the Elixir book, mm-hmm. I think by the creator. I can't, his name slips my mind right now. But even then, we, that we was- We can do some movie magic. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's use the interwebs to kind of, I guess, figure out the name of this person. I know he's, uh, he was the creator of, or at least he had the forward of the, in this book. And that alone is like, everyone reads this book. Like, oh yeah, I read the, f- the previous version of that book. And I'm like, oh, okay, well I'm outdated now because there are so many new books out. But I imagine like there are f- like the one person for that language. And that's what everyone follows. Yeah. I find it interesting, especially with that, with the elixir that you mentioned, because it's pretty rare that somebody who created a language is also so talented at teaching the language. Right. I feel like that's not necessarily the common state of affairs. Like, you know, there's people like, you know, Rich Hickey who wrote Clojure. He speaks at conferences and he's, you know, obviously he knows more about Clojure than anybody else because he's the one who wrote the language. But there's a lot of other books that are written by other people that are considered to be great books on the language, for example. Mm. Um, the book is by Dave Thomas, mm. and I believe the creator of Elixir has a forward on it and has is very communicative in the Slack channel. I managed to get an invitation from there. I imagine if I can get it, anyone can. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, like you'll see that people have like questions about it, and they and the community is really really cool for Elixir. Yeah, the community is actually really cool for functional programming in general. There's a Slack, I believe it's called FP Chat that I've been 
lurking for a while and there's a lot of big names there's the different channels for different languages and like there's a channel for javascript and there's a channel for ruby and there's channels for haskell and ocaml and all this sort of hardcore languages but in some of the smaller communities there's a lot of big names from the from the community at large that actively participate i know elixir in the elixir slack you know jose Valim, who is one of the the creators of Elixir and Chris McCord, who wrote the Phoenix framework, mm. are both regular participants. Like right. I've had discussions in Slack with Chris McCord, super nice guy. Robin Albus. <laughs> he has no idea who I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very insightful conversation on functional programming. I feel that I learned a lot from Adam today. Yeah, definitely. How, how JavaScript is going to take the world, right? Is that, <laughs> is that what we got out of this? <laughs> but like functional programming in general and how it's a completely different thinking process and how you should use it in the workplace and right. how all the languages that most people use actually have functional programming features in them. Yep. And making it easier to work, like think about how your function or how your program is operating and, you know, being more composable and, and doing dependency injection and all that fun stuff. And easier to test. Easy, yes. Easier, easier, to test. easier to test. Yes. Do we have any teach and learns today we want to discuss? Yeah, I have one. There's a testing framework in JavaScript called Jest, which has been around for a while. And I had looked at it a, a while back and thought, hey, I'm not really interested in using this. And then very recently, I've seen people start talking about it again. And apparently, they've been through some pretty major version updates. And I went and took another look, and now it's really good. Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely heard. I mean, I remember looking at Jest, and I was like, mm, no, use Mocha, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. But now you mentioned, Adam, that now Jest is like a thing everyone should pay attention to. Yeah, all the cool kids are using it now. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great thing that there's now, you know, that's, that the creators of Jest, I guess, stuck at it and came up with something that is really good. I'd love to see why that happens. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that they got stuffed into Create React. App. Well, so they're <laughs> the default for everyone who's starting out in React. Well, a lot of times that's how it's happened with JavaScript that, like, you know, TypeScript got a huge boost from being the default in Angular 2. Right. Yeah, right. Awesome. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dave. Always great having you. Always. A pleasure. Always. And William, I see you. You're there. Thanks for being <laughs> around. It's great having you here. Absolutely. And Adam, Adam, thank you so much for taking your time, precious time, to come down and record here at the Rabbit Hole. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad I was finally able to do this. Yeah, I, I hope to see you more often, or rather, we hope to hear you more often at the Rabbit Hole. And I also like to thank you for listening. Feel free to reach us at twitter.com slash radiofreerabbit. This is The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time.